Today's episode of the Velo News Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Garmin. In fact, Garmin is going to be sponsoring our entire lineup of Tour de France episodes of the Velo News Podcast. Now, look, Garmin is uh, the maker of the new line of Garmin Edge bike computers. That's the 530 or the 830. That's the one with the touchscreen. These computers are built extremely tough, and they have new maps for both the road and the trail. And you know what? They go beyond mere data collection by providing training insights to help you beat your best. Look, I'm going to talk about my experience with the Garmin Edge 530. Earlier this year, I took my 530 to Belgium for the Spring Classics, and I rode all of these different routes around Flanders, some of the epic climbs of the Tour of Flanders. And the helpful thing is you can go on a website like Cycling in Flanders, locate the GPX files for all these different routes that they have, download it right to the 530, and boom, ready to go. I had turn-by-turn -turn navigation to help me uh, navigate these windy, twisty roads in Flanders. And another awesome thing about this computer, uh, one morning I lost it just in my stuff, and uh, it has a, a helpful tool where from your smartphone, you can actually locate your computer. So if it pops off during a ride, or if you're like me and you just kind of lose it in your luggage, it's actually pretty easy to locate. So again, thanks to Garmin for sponsoring this whole month's episode of the Velo News Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Guys, before we start the show, again, the Velo News Tour de France guide is on newsstands now. It's also available at velopress.com. We put a ton of effort into this year's Tour de France guide with some great features that take you inside some of the historical tours of the last 30 years, that being 1989, Greg LeMond versus Laurent Fignon, 1999, which was the emergence of Lance Armstrong, and 2009. And we have some great features that talk about the media, the role that the media played in telling the story of these tours. We also have maps, we have breakdowns of the contenders, we have all the information you need to follow along. So get yours today at velopress.com. Okay, let's get on with the show. Okay, it is Monday morning. We are just under a week to go to the start of the Tour de France. And before we get inundated with all the Tour de France coverage here on the Velo News podcast, I wanted to launch a interview series that I've been wanting to do for a while here, which is interviewing interesting people from the world of cycling media. That's uh, men and women who report the news, who write stories, who do video, who do podcasts that bring us fans inside the Peloton. And I couldn't think of a better person to launch this series with than Jason Gay at the Wall Street Journal, who's my guest today. If you are a person on Twitter, if you read newspapers, you're probably familiar with Jason Gay. Jason is one of the lead sports columnists at the Wall Street Journal. He writes about the NFL, about the NBA, about the big mainstream sports. But Jason is also a huge cycling nut. And because of that, he regularly writes about cycling and brings our cute little niche sport into the big, uh, the big mainstream media arena. Pretty good regularity. This year, Jason has already written about Matthew Vanderpoel, about Ben King. He did a great piece where he went to the World Fat Bike Championships down in Crested Butte and rode a fat bike for the first time. Jason wrote about how important it is to get kids on bikes. And he's just a really important voice for uh, the cycling space right now as, uh, you know, we're always sort of trying to get more eyeballs on our sport. So Jason and I linked up to talk about the tour, to talk about some of the other big storylines going on in American cycling. And I asked Jason some questions about like what makes a good Jason Gay column. So I hope you all enjoy this chat with Jason Gay. Let's get on to it. Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal. I am so very happy to be joined today 
by a guy I'm sure a lot of you have read his columns in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he is not a fat bike world champion, but he is a big fan of Matthew Vanderpool and Peter Sagan's wheelies. It's Jason Gay. Jason, hello. I thought you were going to say he's not a fat bike champion, but he is a fat biker. Like, I thought that's where that was going, which wouldn't have been terribly inaccurate, although I'm getting the BMI down and I'm doing the squats and I'm out on the road. But I didn't know where you were going with that, Fredster. Well, I was hearkening back to your column from this past winter when you actually attended the Fat Bike World Championships in Crested Butte. I was expecting you to potentially contend for the win, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, riding a bike at 10,000 feet elevation when you're from sea level and not used to fat biking, apparently a little bit harder than uh, one might assume. You were a very kind Yoda behind the scenes giving me advice about what to do and what not to do. You failed to mention that um, it's hard. Um, but I have to say, for as hard things go, and I try to spend most of my life avoiding hard things, it was about as much fun as I've had in a bike event of any kind. And if you haven't had the pleasure of riding fat bikes in a beautifully groomed course in Crested Butte or anywhere else in this uh, snow-laden region, please do it. Uh, It was just so much fun, and I want to go back next year. I don't know how I get the journal to, like – put the fat bike world championships on par with like the masters or you know the summer olympics but i'm, I'm gonna fight that fight fred as someone who has attended that event i would say the key one of the keys to enjoying the fat bike world championships is making sure that you at least have a beer and a half in you at all uh, at, at all times because well there are whiskey stops mm-hmm. on the course which candidly i didn't partake in because i was so worried about just not being able to get back on the bike if i stopped for more than 20 seconds now i also like crashed multiple times uh so uh you know i I managed to wiggle my way back onto the bike but um yeah man i mean what a great event what a great place crested butte uh those people have it figured out you know i live in brooklyn i live in a small hole in a rock in brooklyn and you know all the beautiful uh creature comforts non-existent creature comfort of city life and then you go to a place like crested butte and you're like what am i doing with myself (laughs) well we're gonna have to take a quick deviation from this fat bike um podcast fat biking centric (laughs) podcast to talk about yeah it's it's a perfect june topic fat bike world championships (laughs) well jason as we stand here we're uh uh, recording this about a week and a half before the tour de france begins and what um, uh, yeah tour de france coming up fast an asteroid may fall out of the sky between now and when the listeners are reading this early in the, you know early in the tour de france and crush some contender but uh, as we look at the tour de france and the landscape and the contenders and the storylines i'm curious what as you know as a wall street journal columnist what are the storylines you have your eyes on right now surrounding the tour de france i mean i want the unpredictable race that for me is, you know, and I'm a columnist, so I can root for things, Fred. You know, I don't know if you know that. I'm not, I'm not a pure journalist. I don't have to like worry about like, you know, being impartial here. I'm rooting for unpredictability. We've had a rather rote number of races. Uh, the Team Sky dominance, you know, I know, you know, Garrett Thomas like winning last year was an interesting uh, surprise over Chris Froome, but I, I'm, I'm over it. You know, I want to see a race where multiple teams are competitive into the third week. And, you know, I think Egan Bernal of Team Enios, ex-Sky, will be a real contender. And you might just see another Sky rider up there on the top of the podium. 
but I would like you know him to get some competition if it's Fuglesong or if it's Adam Yates or if it's Rigoberto or if it's any number of people. I just want to see a lot of people thrown down on those final stages. Do you have a favorite GC contender? Not necessarily someone who you think is going to win, but just a rider when you look at their personality, their their you know uh, breadth of work that you tend to say, I really like this guy. Well, I'd like to see Iran do well. You know, I think I like him personally as a as a writer. I think he is a beloved person in the Peloton for obvious reasons. People really like him. You know, EF has not had a great deal of success though in Grand Tours and Iran. What did he break his collarbone earlier this season? Yeah. You know, he had a bad uh, a bad fall in uh, the tour last year. Luck has not been his, on his side, but I'd love to see him be positioned for a podium. This was a the guy they were talking about as a potential winner last year at this time. So I'd love to see that. Um, you know, and I think Bernal is a phenomenal story. You know, having this young talent come along. I mean, I know we're all sort of worn down by the Brailsford era, but you know, he would be a historic champion, uh, you know, a young guy from Columbia who, you know, has shown he doesn't really have a weakness. Those TT, you know, TT put out, it was Tour de Suisse last week was pretty heady, right? You know, he didn't drop too much time. Um, so he looks as though he's got the stuff. So that'll be interesting too. I'm with you. I would love to see the Colombians finally break through and win the Tour de yeah. France. I think that's a storyline that um, even you know, Velo News readers, mainstream American uh, readers could identify with uh, just the story of a nation that has been wildly passionate about a sport for so long, has come so close for decades and generations and always has had that next great champion who is just – come so close but never broken through. So between Bernal, between Quintana, between Uran, I, I think this is the best year that the Colombians have to break through. And, you know, I, I'm with you. The more and more I start to think about this Tour de France and, and look, Chris Froome crashing, injuring himself, he's out of the race. It's a horrible tragedy. We, you know, you never want to see that happen to a guy, especially on the cusp of a guy who's chasing history. But boy, once then Garen Thomas crashed out of the Tour de Suisse and you realized he wasn't going to get that important block of racing before the race. I, I wrote this in a column last week. It just seemed like, wow, this is a, a wide open race. I can't remember the last time we had a Tour de France that seemed this wide open, where there's there so many guys who really had a legitimate chance to win or at least a legitimate chance to think they could win. Yeah, I, I mean, and we don't know exactly what kind of shape Thomas will be in, and maybe the you know layoff won't affect him in the way that we're expecting. Um, we're not a hundred percent on what is it Ineos? I keep you know uh, looking at the name and pronouncing it Ineos. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, I've heard it Ineos, Ineos. Um, Ineos I've, I've heard or, it just as Sky. You know, people just saying yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, Cheerios, yeah. Ineos. Ineos. Um, <laughs> but you know presumably they're going to have a very competitive team capable of guiding a leader you know into the mountains or at least to the base of the mountains and you know as we've seen in the modern tour de france team is a huge part of this right protection is a huge part of this and it's you know kind of for a lot of the dullness that people don't like about grand tours and this day and age especially the way the tour de france is focused upon but yeah anything that sort of keeps it Spicy, Fred. You know I like it spicy. The spicy I'm tours. in favor of. Uh, Jason, whenever I look at a Tour de France, and look, I'm a fan of your work. I read all of your columns. Um, I do think in the back of my mind, okay, what are the potential storylines here that might 
make their way into a Jason Gay column. And look, a lot of times you are able to find the the storylines that happen along the road. If there's big controversy, if, you know, if there's uproar. If, something <laughs> if is- a man loses a bike and starts running up his cleats yeah. up the mountain. Totally. If uh, all of a sudden the Tour de France turns into a very short marathon in clickety-clack bike shoes. And so when I, I mean, I- Fred, you're answering your own question, I mean, in a way, because it just is, it, I wish I could say like, all right, you know, I know I'm going to do X, X, X this tour. <laughs> Truth about bike racing is that something always happens, man. It is the wackiest sport there is. And when you think it's become just totally wacky, it kicks up another notch. It's just theater of the absurd almost always. And you can sort of reliably count on at least one really insane thing happening. I'm trying to think last year, yeah. so, you know, the fact that they were spitting at Thomas and Froome, like at the mountaintop finishes was kind of obscene. And like, that was kind of a big storyline. But, um, you know, I, and frankly, Fred, I'm, I'm focused right now on the Red Sox and the Yankees playing in London for a couple mm. of games. So I haven't really turned my laser sharp focus on uh, 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 side storylines of the Tour de France just yet. But don't worry. Well, you have there. you also have to worry about uh, Major League Baseball potentially having a, a combination Tampa Bay and Montreal team, which <laughs> I, when I when I saw that news come down, I couldn't help but seem th- uh, sing the old combination Taco Bell and Pizza Hut song. I'm in the combination <laughs> yes. ta- uh, Tampa Bay and Montreal. I, I was like, who what, is what? that? Is that um, UTFO or whatever the heck they're called? Is that what's the band that sings that? I think that was uh, the well-known artist known as Das Racist. <laughs> ah, right. Got it. <laughs> I was like, what would be the cycling version of a uh, a splitting of two different teams? That would be like if uh, e, uh, Jonathan Vodder's EF team was also uh, in honor. Well, wait a second. Didn't they Columbia. do that? They did the combination of Pizza Hut with Cannondale and uh, Garmin a few years ago. That's true. And now they are the combination Tour de France, World Tour Road Racing Team, and Dirty Kanza Expedition, <laughs> um, Leadville 100 <laughs> Can I adventure just say, team. If you're running like a stage race in the United States or in North America and you're like struggling for attention, and you're like, what is up with this dirty Kanza? Like, it's getting more press than like the AFC Championship. It's incredible, and I think it's an amazing event. And I'm eager to go see it and participate in it potentially. Although I'd need several days. Uh, it's a real mark of how the you know powers and the interests in the sport are shifting. That this has become such a thing. Maybe it's just the people I follow on social media, but I just feel it kicked up. You know. Uh, 50 degrees this year. I will give uh, Jason and the listeners a little peek behind the curtain here at Vela News, but I will say that the uh, coverage we did around Dirty Kansas this year from an online traffic perspective dwarfed our Tour de France coverage. That No way. Yeah. 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 See, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And it speaks to what I keep hearing from people throughout the sport is that, you know, road racing, I love it. I'm never going to stop loving it. But the interest is plateaued and plateaued might be a charitable rendering of what's going on out there and where the real energy is and excitement is, is in adventure riding and gravel riding and things like Dirty Kansas. They're offering something really wild and out there and participatory. And that seems to be where all the excitement is. And for that to be translated into actual like Vela News readership intro, that's fascinating. Well, as someone who used to do those early morning road races in Central Park and Prospect Park in New York City, <laughs> I can say that, uh, you know, those things got to be a little formulaic after a while, but there was always the added uh, adventure of potentially running into a drunk stumbling home from the bars at 5 a.m., which is when a lot of those races had to start. 
you, you mean you mean you got a little bored of never being able to take a right turn, uh, which is uh, <laughs> New York City racing in a nutshell. That no is, right turns. When I talk to people who do Dirty Kansas, they don't tell me too many stories of like over aggressive, potentially doped up masters racers yelling on your left, pull through. I will sue you, sir, <laughs> which occasionally you would get in those New York City races. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the reality of, of what it means to race in the big city. You don't have these, you know, sprawling courses out there. And, you know, Country Road is quite a bit of ways outside of town. And, yeah, we are on these loops. And, 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 and candidly, it's a blessing that there is as much available racing and ride culture here in New York City as there is. I think people are shocked to learn that there is as much racing within the five boroughs as there actually is. But, it is an acquired taste. It's not for everyone. Uh, did you ever ride Floyd Bennett when you were here? I loved Floyd Bennett. That were honestly you did okay the, on all of the bike races that I've done in my days. I've done uh, La Ruta de los Conquistadores. I've done a bunch of Ironmans. I've done uh, but lots of different road cyclocross, whatever mountain bike races. And I got to say that the circuit races at Floyd Bennett Field were some of the hardest, but yet more most enjoyable races that I'd ever done. And I never thought I would have found cycling bliss uh, on an old abandoned an airfield um windy <laughs> windy airfield just getting my head kicked in by all these very strong racers from uh, the west indies and jamaica going going very fast and yet that those were some of the most enjoyable times i had on a bicycle is an awesome scene it really is there's nothing like it there was actually this little kerfuffle at the beginning of the year where um there was some speculation as to whether or not it was going to be allowed to continue. I've heard that it's continuing, which is great. Um, I should clarify, Fred, you're a much, much more talented rider than I am. I, you know, I am such a bad racer that I was basically walking, you know, I was basically not competing. Okay. I, I was able to, to get dropped from basically any ride. Um, but it is, yeah, it's this crazy ancient military tarmac slash hellscape slash super new york awesome scene where yeah you ride you're riding with you know 50 people and there are probably six different languages being spoken at any given moment and it is hard and fast and gosh if you hit the deck there it hurts like no tomorrow and uh yeah so nothing like it i, I highly recommend it <laughs> i think part of the romance of that is how it is just very stripped down bare unclamorous road racing where it's just you and maybe 20 other people in your group and windy and a course that has like three turns on it and it's just you out there racing there's no one watch there's hardly anyone watching you you're at the end of the city and um it's just sort of about like holding someone's wheel and suffering yeah you know you know it's totally true you are at the end of the city you are riding longer to get there than you are in the actual event itself because it is at the very far edge of Brooklyn at the end of Flatbush, basically to the ocean almost. And I always used to think, Fred, on the few times that I rode Floyd Bennett, that you'd be doing these laps and you'd look up at one point and the model airplane club would be out there, yeah. like flying their model airplanes around. And cyclists like to think they're the center of the planet, right? You know, even like weekend cyclists. And I always thought that, like, you know, that is a perfect uh, metaphor for what cycling is in America. We're right about there with the model airplane club, okay? You know, like, <laughs> we're no bigger than that. We're all in this abandoned ghost town airfield just competing because we love about it. 
and, and, and bless us for that. Well, and so there's an interesting parallel between that and Dirty Kanza. I was out at Dirty Kanza last year and I was really interested to see what the buzz was about this race. And, you know, you go out there and it is in this, okay, there's a beauty to the Flint Hills of Kansas and that it's this rolling terrain and it goes on forever. But it's not like you're in the Pyrenees. You know, it's not like you're in the Dolomites or some spectacular place to ride. It's really, yeah. it is about... It's about the suffering and the experience and people are having these very personal cathartic experiences as they are out there punishing themselves and crossing the line. And there's something that's very pure about it. And in talking to people at the finish line and even our very own Spencer Paulison, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago, talking about his experience, like people start to well up and they start to get emotional and they talk about the feelings they had out there about remembering a loved one or about how much they love their wife or husband or whatever. And so one of the reasons why I think Dirty Kansas and some of these adventure gravel races are seizing a hold of people in a way that road racing has struggled to do is that you're having this personal connection to it that maybe you can't get in a traditional road race. And I think that's a really interesting direction that American participatory cycling could be going in. Yeah. And I also think that there's low intimidation culture. As hard an event as a dirty Kanza is, and, and God knows it would take me, again, probably six to eight weeks to finish it, it feels inclusive. It feels like something that is welcoming to a first timer, is welcoming to somebody who, you know, is you know, recently to the sport. Now I know that, you know, there are a whole lot of heavy hitters who are doing it very seriously competitive, but it doesn't have that kind of like clicky feeling. It seems it doesn't put off that vibe that, uh, we both know that road racing can sometimes, uh, kick off. Very true. So Jason, you, you write a lot about cycling alongside all these other, uh, mainstream sports. And, and a question I have for you as always, um, what type of cycling stories tend to resonate with the wall street journal, uh, readers, you know, it's a, it's a wide swath yeah. of humanity. And, and what is it about our sport, the elements of our sport <laughs> that tend to be of interest to, uh, to these Wall Street Are you saying the, that cycling is a wide swath of humanity or the Wall Street Journal readership is a wide swath of humanity? It is I'm a, not sure about either. Wall Street Journal is um, a wide swath of conservative uh, white men. Uh, you know, but it's not past judgment here. <laughs> we, we are, we are uh, entrepreneurially minded, but we are a very, very large uh, readership, you know. Um, and I, I mean, look, I came to this selfishly as somebody who likes cycling. I was a nerd about it. My wife got me into it a million years ago. I've always cared about it. And as a sports writer, I just sort of sheepishly remember asking, well, could I write about this or this? And like it grow, gradually grew into a thing. And, and one of the great things, and I'm sure you guys see it too, like the way that Muse is sort of digitally distributed and social media shared, you can really pick up on things and what works with people and what gets people excited. And I can tell you from writing about cycling that you know, we're always going to get a little bit of an interest in, you know, big events like the Tour de France or something like that. But what really gets people riled up when we write about cycling is anything that just has a, you know, a, a bit of participatory angle. The idea that like, you know, if it's gravel racing, okay, you know, well, I've got gravel racing or I have a gravel bike and here's why I think it's cool. Um, fat biking was certainly along those lines because anybody can do it. Um, and then, you know, I, I think people really respond to stories about, um, 
you know, American cyclists, because as we both know, you know, American cyclists, they're not celebrities, they're not stars, they're not people who, in this country, at least are, you know, uh, mobbed in the supermarket when they go someplace. Um, you know, a story that kind of surprised me um, that, you know, I hate sort of talking about clicks and did well, and stuff like that, but it did do well. We wrote about Ben King during the tour of California. Now, Ben King, you know, he's not going to win a grand tour. He's a guy who is basically a very workaday American rider, really talented, had a great Vuelta last year, winning two stages. Um, but it kind of it was his time, and people really responded to his story and the fact that this guy had sort of put his nose to the grindstone for a very long time, um, had some real setbacks along the way, uh, but it persevered. And you know, people like reading those stories. I I think that the great thing about and this isn't just the cycling thing, but I think in any sport that isn't sort of like you know the heavily hyped big four of you know football, basketball, hockey, baseball that. They can find an audience now. It's a great thing. You don't have people writing and saying, why isn't there a story about the New York Yankees? It's People are sharing it. I constantly hear from people, I can't believe you guys are writing about Matthew Vanderpool. That's insane. Um, but the great stuff, thing about the way that sort of the digital – was the word I'm looking for. So the, 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 the ecosphere of, of digital publishing works now is that it can find its home. And I think that's important for cycling because a lot of us in the cycling media do remember the days of Lance Armstrong and when we did have this story that time and time again could cut through the clutter of the mainstream. And it became for a lot of publications something that eh, we didn't just take for granted, but we wanted to like replicate in the years afterwards. Oh, what's going to who's going to be the next Lance Armstrong? What's going to be the next cycling story to bring cycling into the mainstream and get millions of people involved and mainstream sponsors? And I think something you touched on there, which is interesting, is maybe we don't have to have that. Maybe it is good enough in this digital media landscape to have stories and stars and races that really go deeply with the tribe, that, that feed well, the tribe. Right. And and it's one of the rare sports where there's actually cosplay, right? You know, you don't see people like going out on the weekends and playing baseball games or tackle football, but they can ride their bike. In fact, they can get a bike that is as good or even better than the bike that they'll see their favorite rider riding. They can buy the kit. They can do the whole deal. And I know we sort of make fun of those people and I kind of hate that part of cycling. But I mean, the, the fact that you can kind of not just watch it and obsess over it, but do it really makes cycling distinct. And I think is a real advantage in writing about it sometimes because the passion I think is even stronger because of that. I, I don't know about you. I go play tackle football on the weekends all the time. That's why I have a torn ACL and uh, plantar fasciitis right now. Can I tell you a story? This is not a cycling story. Just really digressive for a second. <laughs> of course. But I just I haven't told anybody. Story. So I went to uh, France a couple weeks ago for French Open in the beginning of the Women's World Cup. And I have a friend who lives in Paris who has what I thought was a baseball team. And he was like, hey, do you want to pitch in the game on Sunday when you're in Paris? And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the greatest thing I've ever heard because I used to pitch in high school. I I literally went and warmed up practice pitching. I was like, I'm back, baby. I'm ready to go. And then he's like, the day before the game, he's like, it's not baseball, you moron. It's slow pitch softball. Where did you think it was baseball? And I'm like, oh, man, I literally, I was like, I got my fork ball working. I got my fastball, my splitter, everything. Well, this, that's, I'm pathetic, Fred. this is a question for you, though, because you do have experience in all these different sports. I sometimes wonder when I look at a sport like slow pitch softball or some of these big mass participant master sports, if there is the same level of obsession and 
just complete insanity that we sometimes find in like masters cycling where sometimes these guys are driven to eat no. by PEDs. I don't think so. I think, no, I don't think so. I think you have lunatics for sure in every sport, but I think there is something about the nature of cycling. And I think it's sort of like this three prong thing. I think the fact that like, it's a fitness thing. So you can sort of track yourself getting better at it rather quickly. And those curves early on when you're getting started are pretty dramatic and exciting. Then there's the whole gearhead part of it where you can really get into the weeds about, you know, working on your own stuff, making yourself more aerodynamic, although that kind of stuff is kind of silly, but like there's all the gear. And the last part of it is I think there's like adrenaline culture of cycling. And we can talk a little bit more if you want about like, Cycling just as an activity, and I think one of the things that unites cyclists and makes us as passionate is that we're vulnerable. You know, we're vulnerable on the roads. We are um, a tribe that loses members, you know, tragically all the time. We just had a woman who was a accomplished track rider in New York City killed by a truck in Manhattan yesterday morning, um, uh, Robin Hyman, and it's just horrible. Um, and that kind of thing happens all the time. So I think that there's an esprit de corps among cyclists as crazy as we are, that sort of comes down to the fact that, you know, we have to look out for each other on the road system. That's interesting. I I've heard, you know, I've, I've definitely been privy to that. And I think that social media, the rise of social media has, um, furthered that element of the tribe of the fact that, you know, when a tragedy like that happens, um, it spreads across your Facebook network or your Twitter feed instantaneously. And you hear about that. And, you know, the industry, people in the industry have talked about that dynamic as chasing people away from road cycling, chasing them towards gravel cycling. Maybe the knowledge of road deaths is actually hurting our sport i haven't actually heard it um though articulated as that's an element of the sport that unites us and brings us together but i, th I think you're right on you hit, you hit the nail yeah on the head that's a good yeah that's a good question i hear that from people all, all the time whether or not it's sort of like a phenomenon of the digital era that we're just hyper aware of all the terrible things that are happening out there on the road system and if the numbers but the numbers have gone up a little bit there have been 12 deaths on the road system in new york city this year um and i think that anybody who has just even spent a small amount of time out there cannot help but be low-level anxiety to terrified of distracted driving. You know, you think of like, we used to worry about drunk drivers and that's still a menace, but I'm just as worried about people on their phones and trying to find their phones and the seat cushions are at their feet and like, you know, a momentary lapse of attention can be fatal. And it just is so... You know, it's not the kind of thing where there are margins of error. Um, and so I think that the attention that these kind of things get, yeah, I can see it being perhaps a barrier to entry for people getting involved in cycling and, and, and maybe pushing them to, to gravel. I, I, I think there's some validity to that. I do hear from people that like, yeah, part of the reason I like gravel is I don't like cars and I like being out in the woods and I like people not bothering me and buzzing by me in a, you know, Chevy. Um, I, that's good. I think it's a good thing that people are, you know, riding periods. So I'm not going to certainly challenge them to do it next to 18 wheelers. No, I think that anything that allows people to get into cycling and then continue to pursue their passion is a huge positive. And that's why I think, you know, events like the Dirty Kanza and just the culture around gravel cycling is important to us right now because, um, it's a little less intimidating to get into, but then also it provides an outlet for people, um, who want to keep going. I mean, we haven't even talked about Zwift and digital racing, but that's a whole other brave new world that, um, the industry has a lot of momentum behind as a potential for, you know, people to continue to race and have, 
I have a question for you on no that. No barrier to entry um, and all these different things. Yeah. I have a question for you on something like Zwift. Yeah. And I've asked this. I remember asking this to USA Cycling a couple of years ago, but, you know, things have shifted even since then. You know, everybody laughed at it, right? They're like, what are you doing? You're like, you know, you're playing your little riding video game. And now I don't think anyone laughs at it. It is here to stay. It is an effective training tool. It is something that people are now competing in. Um, there was part of me that wonders, like, okay, if I'm somebody and I live in a place where, like, to race on the weekends, you know, in some abandoned industrial parking lot, I got to drive 80 miles to go to this place. The race is at, you know, 7.05 a.m. in the morning, and there's a chance that some lunatic is going to, you know, swipe me and I'm going to hit the deck and hurt myself and break my collarbone. Um, and I can get not... 100% of the vibe of a race, but maybe a solid 55% of the vibe of a race racing virtually and Zwift against a bunch of, you know, avatars. Is that an existential threat to sort of grassroots racing? And I can't help but think that there's probably something to that. Um, I'll take it a step further, which is I think it could become an existential threat to even professional racing. Um, one of the teams that I've been talking to has been talked about how like the the landscape of women's professional cycling in the United States has fallen apart over the last few years. And now she's having her team participate in these regular Zwift races because A, it's exposure. B, there's prize money involved. And C, it's just bike racing. It's like a actual race that they can do. Whereas, you know, it's so expensive to put on a high level professional race and the sponsors aren't even that happy because no one comes out to watch it anymore. That maybe this virtual thing is actually going to be the new landscape for pro racing. Look, you know... There's part of me, the traditionalist in me looks at this as a sort of dystopian future of, um, you know, isn't the whole re reason we go ride and race is to get outdoors and to get away from yeah. the screen? Yes, to, yes, it, you know, it is. Participate it is. in this stuff. But yeah, I mean, when you when you start to think about the very real fears and the very real barriers to participating in events and the fact that Zwift can knock all that down just because it's like your Wi-Fi hookup and a membership and that's it. Um, yeah, you know. no, no question about it. And, and all of us who have done it have had that experience of being wailing away on your machine and like, trying to beat some person who you have no idea who they are, or if they're even a real person, uh, or if they've entered their weight correctly. Um, but yeah, I feel like, uh, there's no sense in turning a snobby shoulder to it because it's here to stay. Um, there is, unlike a lot of esports, there is real, um, you know, potential for sort of cross-pollination among the people who do it in real life and the people who are doing it virtually. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, as a, again, it's a training tool. There's some use to it for sure. There's no question about it. Now, we have heard lots of criticism from World Tour level racers about the potential for high-level Zwift racing of them saying, look, how many watts you push on a Zwift bike, that's only one element of what makes me a skilled professional road cyclist. I mean, Chad Hager was talking about in the time trial. He's just like, you know, to be a good time trialist, you study every inch of the time of trial course. Of course. You of cut course. it as close to the corner as you can without falling over. We saw Egan Bernal almost crash the other day in the Tour de Suisse time trial. It's like there's so many of these other elements that go into it. And so while I cheer the rise of uh, e-racing and Zwift cycling, I, I don't want it to surpass traditional outside bike racing, nor do I think it will. Of I, I, there of are these it, other elements right. to real racing that I do think make it so compelling. Yes, massively. There, there is, there is as, as uh, you're alluding to, there's uh, course knowledge, 
There's experience. There is handling above all else. There is teamwork. There's a billion things why why this isn't going to be a replacement for bike racing. And I think chief among them, which we're sometimes forgetting, is just environment, the aesthetics. I think a huge, huge part of why, and I'm convinced of this, a big, big audience for the Tour de France the Giro d'Italia and the Welt even are just the aesthetics. People love having it on. They love looking at these mountain passes. They love looking at the chalet. They love, you know, hearing people talking about the churches and the sheep painted yellow and red polka dot and all that kind of stuff. And there's just no way for a computer simulation to ever replicate that kind of, you know, viewer experience. So I don't think there's any sort of like existential danger of it eliminating the professional sport. But I do think that it is an opportunity for the sports to kind of like grab another sort of part of, again, that sort of participatory ridership, you know, like people who are invested in it, not just because they like are into the riders, but because they're doing it. Um, and like when the Giro came out and, and, you know, let's face it, that was like classic Giro one, <laughs> one. I mean, they've, they've done everything but propose like a prologue on Mars. And if they could do it, they will do it. They will announce a prologue on Mars. So for them to say, okay, we're going to do a virtual stage maybe in Zwift, like, you got to sort of take that with a grain of salt. That is like classic Jira move, whether whether or not, you know, I don't think the writers would ever go along with it. But, you know, why not? You know, uh, a couple points. First, how dare you besmirch uh, Zwift Island as not being as scenic as the uh, Pyrenees? Those, you know, those uh, coders, those coders <laughs> uh, are working overtime yeah. to try and make Zwift Island. Look no, so nice. but, you know, I have to say I've ridden in the center of many volcanoes and I find the volcano center of Zwift Island very unrealistic. <laughs> I found um, Central Park on I found uh, Zwift Central Park to be very unrealistic too because I was like we need far more tourists with their like looking at their phones just blindly walking across the middle yes. of the street uh, yes. in the middle of the strollers day. and and people screaming at you and so on and and lunatics on TT bikes um, I also, but I found that that I couldn't do that. I had to beg off of uh, that. I, it just made me despondent. <laughs> the idea of watching of do riding a virtual simulation of something that is four miles away from me was I just couldn't do it. It was too depressing. Which, like I, I had to find something totally you know different. Which even riding around that thing IRL in real life is somewhat mind numbing. I mean, it's fun, but you and you know you've if I had a quarter for every lap I rode around Central Park in my four years living there, I'd have. I, yeah, well, I live near Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And, and and there's a part of the season that I sort of think of as the hamster zone where <laughs> you really start to think that you're a hamster and you're in that spinning wheel. And like the first part of the season, you're like, I can't wait to get out there. I'm just going, I'm just going in circles. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. I did, did, did 10 circles today. But then like by like mid-June, you're like, what am I doing with my life? You know, it's just, yeah, it's the hamster zone. Did you ever ride though behind, um, when I was out there riding in Prospect Park, there was a, a group of cyclists who were uh, Orthodox Jews who had the tassels um, coming out of their bike shorts. Yes, and absolutely. I talked absolutely. to them. They were, they were, they were great. They were friendly. They, they like acknowledged how different it was. Um, and they loved cycling just as much as, uh, any other lunatic. No, there. and some of the riders, men and women can really throw down. I mean, you know, that, I mean, look, New York has a lot of, you know, disadvantages because of the limited amount of space we have to ride. But man, the scene, it just can't be beat. It's just awesome. Great scene. Great scene. So Jason, as we wrap up here um, with the Tour de France on the horizon, I want you to look into your crystal ball and uh, I want you to come up with a podium for me. The Jason Gay podium at the Tour de France 2019, third place, second place and the winner. Okay. All right. I'll do this. I'm going to do Bernal. 
I'm going to do Fuglesong, and I'm going to do Thomas. I just feel like, look, Sky has cracked this. And until someone has knocked them off, I, I just, you know, I just, I think they cracked this. And uh, with that TT was all I kind of need to say. Um, I don't know if Thomas, you know, I think that the, the, the Thomas v. Bernal, I, I think it's pretty much a Bernal race now, right? And Fuglesong has been, you know, wire to wire, kind of the best rider in the sport this season. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, boy, that Liege, best on Liege win, keeping his bike upright, winning the Dauphiné, he's definitely turned the corner. Um, Is it Fuglesang or Fuglesang? I never get it right. When you hear the Euros, it's Fuglesang. 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 Jakob right. Fuglesang. <laughs> I, I, I've been... Uh, and Astana's a pretty good team this year, so, like, he's going to have some support. So, you know, I, I, I you know, they're the... The sound is always full of surprises. So just to clarify, you have Bernal as number one or Garen Thomas as number one in your Fuglesong sandwich? <laughs> Did you think I was doing it left or right? No, no. I mean, one, two, three. So I think okay. I'm going to go Bernal one, uh, Fuglesong two, and then Thomas as a uh, consigliere to Bernal at three. Well, you heard it first here, folks. Go on to uh, your on various <laughs> Go lose overseas. your mortgage, everybody. Yeah, your Lock offshore yourself, yeah. uh, online betting zones because the uh, Wall Street Journal columnist believes that uh, Egan Bernal win. I, I'm with you. I think Egan Bernal could very easily win. Uh, Fred, Fred, can I ask you a couple of questions? Of course. Can I ask you a couple of questions before? All right. Um, how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm, uh, <laughs> listeners might not know. I am. My wife and I are five weeks away or so from having Whoa! our first child. Woo! So everything Incredible. is good. It's a little stressful, but uh, it's it's all good. So the child is uh, is five weeks away. So that means the tour wraps up. What is it? Uh, you know, late July. So you can go to the whole tour and just wiggle home and for the baby's birth, right? Is that what you're gonna do? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll be there. The whole time, just texting my wife, hey, honey, how you feeling? Uh, uh, yeah. No, I will yeah. not be going to the Tour de France this year. I have uh, bigger projects going on at home. Yeah. Um, my Velanese questions are, um, what do people care about, like, equipment-wise? What are people going, like, I, you know, because I always loved reading the gear stuff. Still do. But what are people obsessed about now? You mentioned that they're obsessed about participatory writing and the thing about Kanza being bigger than the tour is fascinating. But like, what about from the gearhead perspective? You know, the gearhead perspective has become segmented just like everything else. So, mm. yeah, people are interested as many people are interested in gravel bikes. We hear from all these people who are, this is a fad. This is an affront to cycling. How dare you? Um, so I would say that people are really interested in the battle around componentry, um, Shimano versus SRAM versus Campy, who's coming out with the latest, greatest componentry, who is really getting good electronic shifting in a way where you can add more gears and it's reliable and easy to work on. Um, people dork out over all of the aerodynamic integrated stuff and how fancy and flashy and expensive it is. Yet we also hear complaints from people then saying, Oh my God, this is impossible to work on. I got this fancy new bike and, um, you know, I need to have a master's degree or an in-home mechanic to help me like, Oh really? To just tweak it. That's to tweak it, to, yeah, to, yeah. Take, to put on a new bottle cage or something like that. So those are, those are, uh, common things that people write in about and contact us about, Oh, this bike is so cool and so light and so stiff. Oh my God, I bought it. I got a flat tire and you know, I had, it, it took me, you know, an hour and a half to change the tire. Um, um my other question is, uh, do, you know, Peloton, 
is the big uh, sort of indoor bike company, which is going public mm-hmm. soon. Um, is there any evidence? Do you see anything of people making the leap from Peloton to road riding or, or outdoor bike riding of any kind? <sighs> That's a tough one. I I don't, but I haven't looked at it closely enough. I think that there's potential, but I just think that the demographics at this point in Peloton's uh, coming up are are still a little little bit different. Um, I've yeah, I've done Peloton. I've done Soul Cycle. I've done yeah. uh, Flywheel Sports. I think Flywheel yeah. of them has the most potential for crossover because it is performance based and it is you know you're trying to have these scores and you know it it, it speaks to awakening a newbie to the wild world of performance and cycling. Yeah. No, they're all super fun and they are onto something. I mean, there's a reason why there's a million of them in every city now. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it necessarily is sort of an entry point to road riding. And I always feel like, look, man, indoor cycling is, it's, it's a nice placeholder, but there's no substitute for just feeling the wind on your face and not getting out there on the road. I do love um, Peloton's marketing. I mean, those, uh, those commercials showing someone in their like uh, 18th story fancy apartment <laughs> in the Burj Dubai or whatever, <laughs> pedaling along in their Peloton. <laughs> My other question was, what was it? Did I read a story? I can't remember if it was in your publication or I read about it somewhere else that like, Okay, pedaling at 90 RPM is out. It's all about 80 now. And that, like, we used to think that, like, the sort of, like, magic of 90 was the thing, right? And you're always sort of striving to be in that range. But now there's some study out there that thinks that 98 and, you know, 90 to 100 is actually inefficient and we'd all be better served, like, grinding away at, in, in the in low 80s. I am not an expert on this, but I can tell you <laughs> that um, eating 15 eggs a day this week is great for you. And next week it will cause all sorts of terrible ma- medical maladies that will uh, <laughs> lead you to be hospitalized. I don't know. That's an interesting one. I'll do some Googling, light Googling on that one. I can tell you that I pedal along at uh, 140 RPM because um, I remember watching the Tour de France in, in 1999 and hearing about how the, the champion that year had totally revital, just revamped his pedaling system. And that's why he was winning the Tour de France. Do people still train with the, what are they called, like super cranks or whatever the things that are like, you know, like they're not. You know, they're sort of loose and you have to do all the pulling yourself. You know, what are those things called? They spin. Yeah, the power cranks. Uh, power cranks. Yeah. Do I, you still see those or is that like old school? I, when I saw the peak of those, it was in the triathlon community. and uh, Okay. Because, but that also spoke to sort of the knock against the triathlon community, which is that everyone will try anything. In fact, if you want to try a new <laughs> crazy doohickey, you should try it out with the triathletes because they will actually buy it. Whereas cyclists tend to be a little bit more snobby and say, what? A, yeah. You know, an adhesive gutter that you put on your forehead that absorbs the sweat coming down from your brow. I will not buy that. Whereas the triathletes would be like, I'll take 10. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went through this period. So, you know, I was really into riding all the time and then we had children and there was like this five year gap. And then I sort of came back to like riding recreationally and riding with some friends. And like, I was like the unfrozen bike rider guy. And like, it was fascinating to see, you know, some of the sort of technological changes that have happened, certainly electronic shifting, disc brakes and so on were a much bigger deal than what I remembered. But the other part that was hilarious is the conversations with group rides were exactly the fucking same. Like the, you could just go away from your group ride for 20 years, come back and they're still arguing about the same dumb group sprint that they had like 25 years ago. It's so comically great. Beauty of the Gimbals ride is that uh, everyone can remember who won the town sprint every week dating back to that one day in 1984 <laughs> when Greg Lamont came. <laughs> 
name on the right. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, thank you very much for having me on. This is a real honor, and and I know I'll never be invited back, but uh, speak well, my friend. Uh, Jason, we have a uh, open door policy here on the Villain News Podcast. You are always invited. In fact, we have been uh, playing around with different co-hosts over the last uh, oh. few months. So if you have some burning takes, hot, hot takes from the world of cycling that you need to get out of your chest or just questions about gear, just, just call me up. We'll, we'll throw you on the pod. Sounds good. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Jason. Take care. Bye.